Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of uh, Be Good, brought to you by BVA Nudge Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science, social psychology, neuroscience, and related science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVA Nudge Consulting, and I am delighted today to be introducing our guest, Geoff Cohen. Geoffrey Cohen is a professor of psychology and the James G. Professor, March Professor of Organizational Studies in Education and Business at Stanford University. He is a social psychologist by training and received his PhD at Stanford and his BE at Cornell. Professor Cohen research examine, examine the processes that shape people's sense of belonging and self-concept, and the role that these processes play in various social problems. He has studied the big and small threats to belonging and self-integrity that people encounter in school, work, healthcare settings, politics, communities, and relationships. He and some others have developed concrete science-based strategy to create more welcoming space for people from all walks of life. Geoff has just published a wonderful book called Belonging, the Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. Geoff, welcome to our Be Good podcast. Thank you, Eric. It is a delight to be here. Thanks a lot uh, again for joining us today. We are uh, very excited to have uh, you and to share some of your insight, especially regarding the book that I just mentioned, Belonging. I found it really inspiring and think it was released at the right moment, considering, unfortunately, the state of the world. So, uh, Geoff, maybe we could uh, start a little about your background and uh, career. Uh, you have received, as I mentioned previously, your PhD from Stanford University. Could you tell us uh, more about how you came to be interested in social psychology? Well, it was mostly serendipitous. I had for a long time as a high school student and as an undergraduate been really concerned about social problems. Then I stumbled into this course taught at Cornell uh, on social psychology, and I was just captivated by the idea in particular that the situation, the social circumstances in which we are in can have such a profound effect on how we think, feel, and behave. And that's sort of the, the premise of social psychology is the, you know, we tend to think of minds as sort of relatively isolated and that the way you understand a person is by going deep into their into their mind and the processes of mind but social psychology recognized and this really appealed to me the the power of our circumstances and it, it just kind of resonated i think with my own life having 
I've been a, a pretty shy kid in high school and as a teenager, I was very uh, much aware of just how my mood and even my sense of self would shift depending on whether I was with people I trusted and felt regarded me positively versus where it was sort of uncertain. And I think that whole idea of social psychology with the power situation resonated with my personal experience. And uh, I made it a career long ambition to bridge that interest and fascination that I've had in social psychology with doing good in the world. And I, I tried to kind of bring together these two hats of doing social good and doing social science. And I, I really believe that good science and doing social good can really go hand in hand, that the best, best ways to change uh, the world for the better are often, not always, but often I can be really effectively grounded in science. And, and so that's, that's, that's my story in brief. Okay, uh, thanks. Very good uh, start. Doing well for the world. Uh, it's great. So, could you share uh, with us uh, any mentors that had a particularly strong influence on you? I know that you often uh, mentioned Kurt Lewin, and maybe do you have other research and you could tell us uh, more about why uh, Kurt Lewin was so important for you? It's really hard to underestimate the importance of this man, Kurt Lewin, who was the founding figure of social psychology. Social psychology is a very young discipline relative to other social sciences. It really came of age in World War II and, and it was inspired by many of the problems of World War II. Kurt Lewin was a refugee of Nazi Germany. So he fled uh, right as the Nazis were rising to power. And when he came to America, he was actually changed trained in physics and also gestalt perception. Uh, he was very interested in creating what he thought would help to promote social good. And he was very interested in the problem of how to promote healthful cultures that could act as a bulwark against authoritarian forces. And so what he would do uh, or what he, what he founded was what he called the field of experimental sociology. And what was so novel and almost sort of folly-like at the time was his idea that in addition to just examining social conditions, measuring and observing them, we could as scientists go in and experimentally manipulate social conditions and see if we could create a better world in the context of our experiment. And so he would do these really seminal studies that were just so important that revealed the potential to unlock people's, uh, you know, the better angels of, 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 of people's selves by changing their circumstances. And one famous line of studies, just really in brief, was uh, were studies on the effects of leadership. And he would have people working together either under an authoritarian leader or a democratic leader, a leader who would kind of help the group identify its will and act on it together. And he found these huge effects, uh, for example, in one study on, on children's behavior, the children who were, were, who were being led by the authoritarian leader, in effect, became almost like animals. They became either docile and passive or helpless or really aggressive and hostile to one another. And so the leadership, the style of the leader transformed the boys. They started to kind of look at each other well, one of those sources of threat and engage in all these put downs and aggressive behavior. By contrast, the kids with the more democratic leader who created a sort of climate of equality 
were completely different. They saw one another as sources of affirmation. They worked together cooperatively. They stayed on task. They were kind of less sort of ego motive, motivated, less ego protective, because all of that concern about seeing one another as a threat was sort of eased by the leadership style uh, of the adult in charge. And, and they behaved one to, with one another uh, as a, uh, in a way that was much, much more congenial. And so what Lou was doing in this and many other s studies where he would sort of experimentally manipulate the situation through the leader or through other conditions was to sort of pull the curtains back and say, look what we're capable of. Look what people are capable of if we just tweak the situation even just a little bit uh, through leadership styles. Also, he was very, very interested in the idea that by creating group contexts where people work together cooperatively and democratically to make decisions that the individuals in those groups would become much more motivated to pursue the goal and perform more avidly in pursuit of it. And uh, so he would do these just lovely little studies. And the, the two big, big insights, I think, are that he would show the power of the situation. He would show the power of the situation. Let's show by changing the circumstance in a critical way, we can unlock people's potential. And he had this uh, brazen idea that scientists could create those situations. Scientists could create those. Okay, great. So I understand why it is a, a key mentor for you. Uh, other researchers you would like to mention? Uh, well, my, my mentor was Claude Steele, who uh, was very interested in the problem of minority student underperformance in school. And one of his stories that he, 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 he tells is actually a story from Brent Staples, uh, uh, who, was, uh, who is an editor of New York Times, but early on in his career, Brent Staples, who's black, black American, uh, was working in New York City, and he would notice that the white people as he was walking down the street would be sort of scared of him, and it'd be sort of tense, and they would walk to the other side of the street. Brent noticed that if he did one thing to change the situation, it really diffused it. And what was that one thing? He would whistle Vivaldi, whistle Vivaldi. And just by whistling that, that uh, whistling some songs by Vivaldi, he noticed that the people uh, that had, you know, once saw him as a threat suddenly warmed up to him. It became it diffused the tension. They were kind of easier going and they didn't cross the street and they even smiled at him. And so that was an example of how uh, a change to the situation can change people's perceptions and the entirety of the experience. And uh, that really shaped a lot of uh, Claude Steele's research on what he called stereotype threat. Claude became really interested in, well, how can we as teachers or educators or schools uh, or practitioners create situations where those stereotypes are sort of sidelined from the situation rather than in Brent's case, he, he did something himself to diffuse the stereotype or to render it irrelevant. What Claude was interested in was um, ways in which we could as practitioners or, or gatekeepers or teachers uh, create those situations where people are freed from the, the um, concerns around the stereotype. So both those people, Lewin and Steele, were really influential to me. Lewin for the power of the situation Claude, uh, for all of his research on the power of the perception, of, of perception, because situations are ultimately subjective affairs, and they can be changed dramatically by changing the way people perceive them. 
Uh, now, uh, time to uh, speak. I mentioned your wonderful uh, book, Belonging. I think it was uh, released uh, last September. Uh, can you tell us more about the inspiration behind uh, writing it? How did the idea for the book come to you? Mm. Well, I think that the story of belonging and inclusion is a very American story. Our, our country, our country, United States, faces a really, you know, I mean, increasingly many other countries face this challenge too, of how to create a truly inclusive society where all feel they belong. And that feels like it is just a fundamental problem for many countries and many democracies around the world, but especially diverse ones. And in America, it has been just an ongoing challenge. And so for me, that is really a key key motivator that it feels like it's a uh, fundamental problem in any society as to how to create institutions, or for that matter, just day-to-day -day encounters where people can engage with one another as equals and feel like they are accepted and accorded a full measure of regard. That is the challenge of of inclusion. That is the challenge of belonging. The word belong literally means to go together. And uh, how do we create situations in our, our institutions, in our communities, in our families? How do we navigate day-to-day -day encounters in ways that make that ideal a reality where we all feel accepted and seen for who we are? Uh, so to me, that feels like a fundamental challenge. Also, as I said, personally, I, I feel like, you know, I, I was uh, very sensitive as a, as a kid growing up to concerns about belonging. I think we all are, and it, uh, some more than others. And it was a kind of uh, personal motivation, too, to just understand how, um, uh, how belonging mattered. I felt like it mattered in my own life. And so, you know, research is in many ways me-search. Um, and so that was another impetus. And then finally, a, a brilliant, I happen to just have the fortuitous uh, or the good fortune of a brilliant graduate student, Greg Walton, uh, work in my lab at, uh, at, at, at uh, Yale when I was an assistant professor there. And he was just uh, so insightful and so perceptive. And, and together we did some of these early studies on the role of belonging in shaping academic identity and, and achievement and how we can cultivate it. So it was all these... Um, Uh, it, it, all these factors really played into into writing the book. Uh, okay, so I would like to start with uh, uh, what is at the heart of your book, belonging. Why do you think belonging is so important for human beings? Well, as human beings, as Matt Lieberman and Naomi Eisenberg, two social psychologists, point out, uh, we really need each other to survive. Evolutionarily, we can't go it alone. We can't go it alone. As um, physical creatures out there in the wild, we are, uh, at least in, in ancient times, primitive times, we are highly edible, highly edible, unless we work together, unless we work together. And so to survive and, and now to thrive, we really need to be in groups. And groups are kind of like the engine for not just survival, but for innovation and for break, creative breakthroughs. We as human beings are exquisitely social creature. 
exquisitely social creature. Every, uh, and so uh, because we needed each other uh, to survive, we've actually evolved to be exquisitely attuned to messages that we don't belong. And in fact, research bears this out. One of the worst or sort of most toxic in psychological states is loneliness, feeling disconnected from the rest of humanity. And increasingly, it's even been called a pandemic. Now, I think roughly one in five or one in four Americans suffer from chronic loneliness, which is no joke. Uh, chronic loneliness is uh, as bad for you as being an alcoholic or smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Now, why is that the case? Well, as the late John Cassiopo uh, put it in his in, in his wonderful research, he was really a pioneer in this work. That you know, one of the we have evolved so that when the central our central nervous system sends the message, "I am alone here," we are on alert. We know that we're vulnerable, and so that activates a fight or flight response. Our sort of physiological stress system ratchets up. Even our DNA and research by Steve Cole seems to change to activate an inflammatory response, which is fine in the short term. If you're all alone and you're vulnerable to physical wounding, it makes sense to be in this fight or flight self-protective mode. The problem is, is that when it's chronically activated or cognitively replayed over and over, it really weathers the body and uh, has been uh, uh, implicated in various kinds of diseases ranging from cardiovascular disease to diabetes and other sort of diseases of distress and despair. So this is why we are social creatures. We need each other to, to, to survive. And if we feel alone, our body responds by uh, uh, going to a sort of self-protective mode uh, that over when chronically activated can, can do devastating damage. You have coined with uh... Greg Walton, that you just uh, quote, the term belonging uncertainty. Could you explain it and why the feeling of uh, belonging is so fragile, I would say? Yeah, yeah. It is true. It is fragile. Uh, I, I love these studies by Kip Williams and his colleagues. You can show the power of the need by so showing how trivial, how trivial things affect it. And so Kip does these wonderful little studies where he uh, has people excluded in this sort of trivial video game where you're playing a game of cyber catch. And all of a sudden, these people that you don't know, it's actually programmed into the computer, stop throwing you the ball in a video game. What's the effect of that on psychology? And as Kip puts it in a word, it's pain. People actually feel experience a kind of physical pain if you put them in the scanner research suggests their regions associated with physical pain are relatively activated they people report feeling a sense of meaninglessness a lack of control in their lives a lack of purpose so that study demonstrates the power of the need by showing how small things can threaten or kind of uh, threaten us along uh, in terms of our sense of belonging. It shows the power of belonging by showing how trivial, it, how, how, how subtle the events that threaten it can be. So belonging uncertainty describes a state of mind where uh, we're just uncertain if we, be if we belong or not. Uh, so a lot of times I think that is the reality of our social lives is we just don't know. There's ambiguity in so much of social life. Does my boss believe in me or not? Does this person that I met like me or not? Uh, we are uncertain of our 
respect and regard in the eyes of others. And that's a state of, of belonging and certainty. It's, it's, it's not like we're certain one way or another. It's just a sort of hypothesis out there in our minds. Like maybe I do, maybe I don't. Now, the problem with that is that we end up spending a lot of cognitive energy trying to answer the question, especially if it's some in some domain like work and school where we really do want to belong. It's almost like our in our heads, this, this is sort of scale with two counterpoised pans. And some days a good thing happens and we feel like, oh, yeah, I belong. And then the next day we feel slighted and we feel like, oh, no, I don't belong. And that, that's sort of the state of mind of belonging and certainty. I really felt it as an assistant professor. I, I tell this story where, you know, as a, as a first year professor, I felt acute belonging and certainty. Um, I really didn't know if I, I was, I was in a pretty, um, uh, uh, yeah, pretty uh, selective uh, department. And uh, there were all these sort of grand poobahs of psychology there. And I constantly felt in their shadow. And I just didn't really know if I, if I belonged And what, what what happened is I would just notice at the end of the day, I would come home and uh, there were two things. One is I was exhausted. I was exhausted. And I look back on the day, I'd be like, what did I do? And it was nothing except for worry. I'd be sort of playing and replaying these events in my head and wondering what they meant. For example, my chair once patted me on my shoulder and said, how's that class going? And I'm like, did he hear something about it? Uh, did he hear something negative? So that's that's kind of my mind was stewing, and that takes up a lot of cognitive energy. So that's one symptom of belonging uncertainty. A second symptom of uh, belonging uncertainty is that little things uh, start to loom large psychologically. That if you're in this state, you're kind of thirsting for evidence one way or another, and and that's what we find a lot. That when um, people aren't sure of their connections little things loom large. Uh, Michelle Obama, when she was in Princeton, she was the first in her family to go to college. Uh, she arrived at Princeton and she noticed that her bedsheets didn't fit. And in an interview, she's like, she recalls how she just wondered, what does this mean? Does this mean I'm not a Princeton student? This, this little thing becomes, little things become emblematic when we're in the state. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe um, uh, one of the biggest problem of our time is this crisis of uh, belonging. Uh, we see it uh, obviously in politics, uh, but also at work, school and in our daily life. According to you, what are the main causes of this crisis of belonging? Why now? I mean, there's many answers. There's many factors. I will boil it down to fear. Fear. Uh, I think there's a lot of fear blanketing our cultures for various reasons. The media, which stokes fear, loathing, and outrage, they, they profit, they have found a way to monetize those things. Uh, social media uh, creates a situation of divisiveness and online harassment. Uh, and then the old jobs and uh, employment opportunities. It used to be the case that we had communities and workplaces where um, you know many could have stable stable employment, for example. And and those days are over. So I think for a lot of people, uh, the opportunity to kind of have a stable place of work where you're gainfully employed and you know you will be that creates that that is no longer part of a, a part of America for many many individuals, and that creates even more fear. Um, and uh, uh, 
and just the kind of individualism of our society, I think as well, kind of also adds to it. Things become even more fearful when you're alone, when you're alone, as we talked about. So I believe that the, the main culprit here is, is fear. And I, you can't really talk about fear without talking about our politics and how uh, across the political aisle, um, the media, especially the media, but politicians too, stir up fear of the other. Uh, you have a lot to be scared about and they are to blame. So I think all those things kind of create a culture of fear and that um, contributes a lot to the crisis of belonging. That contributes a lot to the crisis of belonging. We're also just less communitarian than we used to be. We don't go out. We don't enjoy social interactions. We don't socialize as much. Just socializing has has, has gone down uh, in our country and I think around the globe over the past uh decade and a half. So um, many things, you know, there are so many, you know, it's, it's multifactorial. There are many, many factors contributing to this crisis. And, uh, uh, and I think one of the reasons that I do this research is to help people become aware of how they can kind of fight back against those, those powerful forces. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot. Uh, Geoff, I would like to go uh, now into uh, each of the major elements that can damage the feeling of uh, and the sense of uh, belonging. I think uh, what you maybe we could start with uh, what you call us versus them, which is a kind of uh, paradox. It seems that we are given to excluding in order to feel included. Could you elaborate a little on this? Well, one of the easiest ways to enhance your self-worth uh, is to put down someone else. One of the way, easiest ways that you can feel like, hey, I'm part of this group is to, uh, and, and that this group is, is superior is to put, denigrate another group. So I think it's, uh, you know, going around, going about our social lives, I think we have many, many ways in which we can enhance our self-worth and improve our sense of belonging. And some of them are Uh, relatively destructive, creating these sort of compare, uh, comparisons in which we put down other people or put down other groups to make ourselves feel better about our own. And uh, that's been shown in a number of different studies. One of my favorites is this work by uh, uh, this study by Steve Fine and Steve Spencer. Well, I'll make a long story short where they, they show that uh, when making employment decisions, people engage in anti-Semitism partly in order to enhance their own self-worth. And so they do a study where you're making a decision to hire either a Jewish person or a Catholic person. And what they find is that on average, people are more likely to hire the Catholic individual than the Jewish individual, even when their credentials are equivalent. Uh, But more frighteningly, they're especially likely to do that when their self-worth is threatened. For instance, if beforehand they receive negative and moreover the more that they denigrate the jewish person put down that group uh the 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 more improvement they experience in their self-esteem so that's an example of how one way we can kind of feel good about ourselves and good about our group is by putting down putting down another we can kind of sort of take the stereotype off the shelf as a sort of cognitively available justification for denigrating someone else so um 
I think that that mentality, that us versus them mentality happens under specific circumstance, research suggests. It happens when we are in a state of threat, when we feel like it could be any number of threats, it could be resources are limited and there's only a certain number of them. It could be my ego is under threat. I don't know if I'm seen positively at work or at school. It could be the threat of the out group. I don't know if they're, they're friend or foe. Under those situations, we are evolved to do this in part uh, because it makes sense to wonder, to kind of for that to be the first question we ask when we encounter a stranger, are they friend or foe? Uh, it's in these situations where we're under threat that that us versus them mentality really takes root. Second, you mention uh, what you consider to be one of the most widespread and least appreciated psychology since which is called the fundamental attribution uh, error. Could you explain this uh, big uh, human bias and illustrate it with some uh, experiments? Oh, sure. I, you know, if, if my book does one thing, I really hope it helps to popularize this notion. It's a one bit of jargon. I, I, I really restrain myself from a lot of jargon in this book, but the fundamental attribute error I kept. And this is a term uh, coined by the uh, social psychologist Lee Ross, who was a mentor of mine, and he passed away just uh, one or two, uh, roughly a year and a half ago. The fundamental attribution error refers to our tendency when explaining people's behavior to overestimate the importance of dispositional factors, things inside of them, and to underestimate the impact of their situation, the things outside of them. This is a pervasive human penchant. We commit it, uh, especially for the subtle social factors that are affecting, you know, that kind of uh, are pervasive throughout social life. Uh, but it is one of the most powerful and well-replicated biases or phenomena even in social psychology. We underestimate the power of the situation and we overestimate the importance of the, the person. And one of the, my favorite studies that Lee uh, did with Steve Samuels uh, and, and others was uh, a great little study where he simply brought people into the lab and looked at whether or not they cooperated or defected in a uh, sort of like not really cheated, but cooperated or competed with an adversary in one of these economic games, Prisoner's Dilemma game. And without going into the details of the game, long story short, a person has one or two options in these games. Uh, they can either, they can either uh, cooperate with the other player and share a pot of money, or they can do what's called defect, try to go for the grab and take all the money for themselves. So when you ask people, what do you think? is going to predict whether or not people cooperate or defect. They say the person's personality. And in fact, when you ask uh, people in these studies to predict whether or not someone who is reputationally nice or nasty among their peers will, um, will, will cooperate and defect, they think, yeah, that's going to really predict. The, the people who are, who are known as nice are going to cooperate. The people who are known as nasty are going to defect. But it turns out in the studies that, that Lee and others have done, that hardly matters at all in predicting people's behavior and in, in, in direct defiance to people's intuitions. 
People overestimate the importance of, of dispositions in predicting behavior in this prisoner's dilemma game. And meanwhile, they underestimate the importance of the situation. Uh, Lee shows that a simple situational manipulation has a huge effect on whether people cooperate or defect. When the game is offhandedly referred to by the experimenter as the, the Wall Street game, 70% of players defect. When the experimenter refers to the same exact game as the community game, 70% cooperate. Now, when you ask people, what do you think the name of the game? How do you think that'll affect behavior? People say, yeah, I don't think that'll matter at all. I think it's going to be the person. Personality is so big. It's such a fundamental force. And uh, no, it's actually this tiny aspect of the situation which alters people's construal of what it's all about that, that really matters. And so you see this throughout. I see this all experiences all the time when I'm driving. George Carlin captured it well when he's like, have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that when you're out there driving, everyone who is going slower than you is an idiot. And everyone who is going faster than you is a maniac. <laughs> so the fundamental attribution error runs rampant in, in, uh, uh, in driving and probably contributes to a lot of road rage. Mm. And why it is so important uh, regarding belonging? What are the consequences of this bias on belonging? The consequence of this belong, uh, this error on belonging is that we constantly feel that we're catching people dead to rights in revealing who they really are, in revealing who they really are, which is fine as long as people are behaving pretty well. But once in a while, we don't behave as well as we could. We don't perform as well as we could. We fall short, and this happens to all of us. What the fundamental attribution error does is that it turns these everyday accidents or these everyday failures on our part into deficits in the other person's minds. And that can obviously create a lot of division and a lot of mistrust, a lot of mistrust. So um, the way that it contributes to belonging uncertainty, or sorry, the way that it threatens belonging is, is just through that. We, we think that when people let us down or perform poorly, that's something about them. They lack some virtue, some character trait, some ability. But oftentimes, we should dig a little deeper, find out about the circumstance. I was really struck by this little anecdote that uh, an actor told. Um, I think it was, uh, it was about Ch Chadwick Boseman, who was, uh, played Black Panther. Uh, and one of the actors described how he was working with Boseman in another movie, which was grueling. It was like a military movie. And, and the actor described, yeah, you know, when I met Bozeman, I just thought he was full of himself. This guy was just full of himself. He had a masseuse there to massage his shoulders. His girlfriend was there constantly holding his hand and he had someone there to, to uh, warm his feet. And I just thought he was demanding a ton of pampering. And the guy, the actor who's recalling this, who made all these judgments, then says, like, I feel so bad. I feel so bad because I didn't know something about the situation. And we all didn't know that Chadwick Boseman had terminal colon cancer, stage four colon cancer on that set. And it was his situation. He was dealing with horrendous pain. Uh, so I think this kinds of thing happens all the time, sadly, in our schools, in our workplaces, the employees, the students who underperform, but especially those 
who are from these marginalized and stereotype groups, uh, all the fundamental attribution error predicts that those who are under-resourced will consistently be underestimated. Geoff, mm-hmm. um, uh, stereotypes are also certainly a key reason why a lot of people who belong to marginalized communities feel they don't be- belong. Could you go into the detail of how stereotypes work, both from the perspective of those who are stereotype and those who experience being stereotyped? Well, uh, there are many answers to that question, so let me give you two. Stereotypes prevent us from fully seeing the other person. They're like prisms, mental prisms. And like any mental prism, they leave out as much as they take in. And there's an abundance of research now in social psychology showing that when we engage in what's called impression formation, forming an impression of another person, we bring to bear our expectations and our stereotypes in imbuing that person with with qualities that we think are there. We don't see the person uh, bottom up. We actually apply stereotypes and expectations and see them uh, sort of in this top-down way, uh, in ways we kind of, uh, we, we are percept, we end up conforming our perceptions to the stereotype rather than adjusting our stereotype to the, to the person, in a lot of cases, not all. So what this does is it, it leads us to kind of not see the person, not see the person, and, and to jump to conclusions way too fast. One of my favorite examples of this is some recent research by Jason Okanafua at Berkeley, where he shows that, uh, just to take this example, he gives teachers uh, uh, an incident, has them read an incident about a student who walks around in class and you know, causes a little ruckus, Uh, and then he uh, later on does causes a little more ruckus, does something else, maybe talks back to the teacher just a little bit. Now, when that student is white, uh, people are like, yeah, I don't know. There must be something. There might, I, you know, I don't think this kid's a troublemaker. There's probably something going on. Maybe he had a bad day. Uh, but when the student is black, they're like, this kid's a troublemaker. And maybe we should consider detention or suspension. So people, we jump to conclusion. The stereotypes kind of facilitate the fundamental attribution error. We end up making dispositional. We're too quick to judge, to go from behavior to some corresponding disposition, rather than entertain possibility, hey, maybe there's something more going on with this person. There's more complexity there than, than, than I see. Um, so th- so that's, that's uh, one thing. The stereotype colors our perceptions, uh, often in really negative ways and in ways that can damage the life trajectories of so many kids and so many adults for that matter. And it's very painful, uh, I think, to, to read some of this research. I, you know, the late Diva Pager, for instance, showed that uh, she did these wonderful audit studies where black or white employees come into a job to apply. And she found that black employees were consistently less likely to receive a callback than white employees, even when their resumes were equalized. And moreover, the effect of race was as big as the effect of having a prison record. So uh, these things tell us that, yeah, uh, stereotypes can be a powerful force in channeling people's opportunities. Now, from the perspective of the person who is stereotyped, uh, there are many different consequences, and there's a rich field of research on what's known as uh, social stigma. I don't really like that term, but there's a rich field of research on the 
first person experience of contending with the possibility of being stereotyped. And just to take one example of that uh, uh, work, my favorite work in this area is by Claude Steele uh, on stereotype threat, where he shows that if I know that the stereotype is out there and I could be judged in light of it, it's understandable for me to enter situations and be a bit wary of that. If I'm a kid like that kid in Jason O'Connor's study, I enter a classroom, I'm really aware that I could be seen through the lens of a stereotype. Now, what does that do? It can do all kinds of things. It can make me a little wary of the teacher, a little mistrustful. It can kind of create stress because now I'm worried that if I do or if I say something wrong, I could bring down the judgment of the stereotype. So it kind of has this double whammy effect. I am not seen fully, and then I don't express myself, show what I know fully. And that's, that, that's the poignant, um, that, that's, those are just two tragic consequences of, of stereotyping and prejudice. Uh, Jeff, I think it's time to talk about solution because now we have uh, understood why there is this crisis uh, uh, of belonging and also why uh, belonging is so fragile. So uh, what is great with your book is you suggest uh, impactful uh, uh, solution. So could you first speak about what I call general solution before we go into some uh, details? First, maybe what you call situation crafting. Can you explain what is this and sharing some experiments? Sure. Situation crafting refers to the, the sort of uh, craft of altering situations in ways that bring out people's individual and collective best. So the research in social psychology illustrates the power of the situation. There are circumstances right here, right now, like how I'm being treated, what's being said, the happenings of place. Um, situation crafting is a skill set that gives back to the individual some agency. So as part of the every situation I'm in, I have some power to change it. I have some power to change it. And so how do I change it? What do I change? And there is a kind of art, but also a science, or it's in, the, the craft is informed by science, to knowing you know just what thing to add that will make the situation go a little more smoother, uh, a little more uh, able to bring out people's potential. And that's what Kurt Lewin was doing. Uh, for instance, with those democratic or authoritarian leaders or creating group decision-making processes, was he was altering the situation just a little bit to activate the positive potentials that were there, but that weren't surfacing. So situation crafting is the, the power that we all have in every single situation to make it at least a little bit better, to make it a little bit better. And the research suggests that this is really within our power, even like little things. I, I, I'm really struck by this research by Jennifer Eberhardt and colleagues showing that politeness matters so much, especially in cross-race encounters between the police and, and black drivers. These little indignities that we perhaps all engage in to some varying degree where we fail to say please, we fail to say thank you, we interrupt, uh, we don't appreciate a person. We don't express gratitude for their contribution. We all do this. Um, but those things can add up 
to the, the person on the receiving end and cause them to feel like they don't belong and even undermine their performance. There's some lovely research showing that even just one rude comment can make physicians underperform. So that's just an example of situation crafting, being polite, seeing the person fully, appreciating their presence. Just one example among many. There's a whole suite of practices, let's call them, that social psychology has uncovered that reveal these little points of leverage in the situation that we can all kind of tap into. And, um, uh, and so situation crafting is the sort of broad rubric I give to, to encompass all those different, those different practices. There is also something which is uh, really interesting. Uh, you call it wise intervention. What define uh, a wise intervention? And could you share a, an example of a wise intervention? Sure. A wise intervention, as, as Greg Walton has called it, but uh, you know, Claude Steele and Irving Goffman before him, uh, is, a, is a practice that we apply in a situation that is wise to the person's psychology. So wise means in the know. And it was a term that was actually used back in the 50s. The gay subculture in America used the term wise to describe those people who were kind of in the know. They could be trusted to see their full humanity in spite of the stigma against their group. So we use wise in a similar way to refer to ways of interacting, practices, interventions that are in the know, that that convey in word and deed that I see you and I see your full humanity. Um, so it, it sort of has a double meaning. It means wise to psychology, but more specifically, wise strategies are ones that reassure people that they are fully seen and understood as a person with potential. Um, and so there's a few examples of this. Uh, one is comes out of some research by my colleagues, Lee Ross, David Jaeger, Val Purdy Vons, where we look at what we call wise criticism. Now, to make a long story short, what wise criticism is, is critical feedback that you give, but accompanied with a clear statement that you believe in the person's potential to reach a higher standard. And just to give one example, in a field experiment, we gave students of color uh, feedback from their teacher. They received feedback, critical feedback from their teacher on an essay that they wrote. Uh, but for one group of students, that critical feedback was accompanied with a one sentence note that from their teacher, which said, I'm giving you this criticism because I have high expectations and I believe that you can reach them. And that was it. What we found is that the present percentage of children, black children who revised their essay jumped from 17% in a control group to 71% among those students who got that note. Now, why did that note have such a big effect? It had a big effect because it was wise to the kid's psychology. As a, as a student of color, I am understandably a bit wary about whether the stereotype's in play here. I'm being criticized, but is that coming from the stereotype or is that a legitimate reflection of my work? I don't know. But now you tell me it's because I have high standards and I believe in you. And all of a sudden the criticism is inverted in its meaning. Now it is an expression of my belief in you. It is a statement that I see you and I feel as a result 
free of the stereotype, going back to the Brent Staples example, free of the stereotype, and I can throw myself or invest myself more fully in the task. And this kind of thing, uh, wise interventions, when they happen at a formative period in people's lives can have ripple effects. We found years and years later that the percentage of students who went on to a four-year college jumped by 30 percentage points just as a result of getting that note. This was in uh, seventh grade. Uh, now, we're not saying, of course, that a little note will always have this big effect or a little note will kind of close the achievement. What we are saying is that, yeah, we have a power in these encounters to make them go a little bit better and that have the potential to change kids' identity and trajectory. Uh, finding out exactly which wise intervention will do the trick is often difficult to say, but that's just one example of the craft, uh, situation crafting and wise interventions are the tools for make, for doing it. There is also something uh, which seems to be very uh, important, not to try to imagine a person perspective, but to ask for it. Why is it so important? Well, this is a term, this is research by Nick Epley and Juliana Schroeder on the power of perspective getting. The research on human bias suggests that, you know, we kind of get people wrong quite a bit. We rely on stereotypes and heuristics. And oftentimes when we try to imagine another person's perspective, as a result, we, we're inaccurate. We're, we're inaccurate. Sometimes we even just project ourselves. Like I'm trying to, you know, think about how uh, my students feel and I just imagine, try, I kind of put myself in their shoes and I end up thinking more about what I would feel rather than what they feel. So uh, what Nick and Juliana do in a, in a number of studies is to show that an alternative strategy works much better. It, they call it perspective getting. And you can kind of look at it as a wise intervention. It's sort of wise to people's psychology. I, I know what I don't know, so I'm going to ask a few questions to find out. And perspective getting just refers to the act of asking good questions about a person's point of view and listening to the answers. And they find in a number of studies that there's huge empathic gains from that or uh, people become much more accurate in predicting people's people's uh, preferences. One example that Nick gives is in the um, uh, in the repeal of the "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" uh, policy um, for in the military uh, with regard to uh, you know uh, people's sexual identity. Uh, they asked all these experts, "What do you think is going to be the effect of it?" And every all the experts said, "I think morale is going to go is going to is going to plummet." Uh, uh, but then they asked the soldiers themselves, what do you think will be the effect of this, of, of retracting the don't ask, don't tell policy? And I was like, yeah, I don't think it's going to matter that much. And the, the, the people who were much more accurate were the people that, you know, were actually in the midst of the situation, the soldiers, they, they predicted actually the effect. It had very little impact on our morale repealing that policy. So perspective getting is this act of just kind of digging in, trying to understand another person's point of view by asking really good questions and listening to the answers. And we don't do it nearly enough. In some sense, it's very obvious that just asking people for their, their point of view will kind of make you understand them better. But the problem is we're in a way arrogant. We think we know people better than we actually do. It's a illusion, like an illusion of objectivity. We think we see the world as it is, and uh, to some degree, that includes other people. We think we just kind of have a objective pipeline into into their soul, and uh, as a result, we just don't think to ask as much as we should. 
And so a lot of research bears this out. The power of just taking some time, someone upsets you especially, or does something objectionable, just say, hey, what's going on here? Can you tell me a little bit about what you're going through? Something is also uh, critical to be successful in this uh, situation craft, uh, crafting or wise intervention is empathy and authenticity. Uh, it seems it is fundamental uh, prerequisite. Could you come back a little on, more on this? Well, I think a genuine curiosity really is uh, important in any, that's why I don't really quite like the term intervention because it implies a kind of degree of manipulation. I, I see these as just kind of practices, much like make good manners for conveying your appreciation and regard for, for someone else. So, so it is very critical that they be given with authenticity that people genuinely believe what they're saying. You could imagine if students found out that that note about high standards from their teacher was just lip service, then it would have little effect. So authenticity is really clear. And research by Harry Reese and others show that one of the things that we're really attentive to in our human in our relationships is just with partner responsiveness. Is this person kind of responding to who I am uh, and to my needs? And we're really attuned to that. And when we get the sense that uh, someone is actually not being responsive to me, but it's instead applying some script or some stereotype, it's almost like a false note in a melody. We're just like, oh, something wrong here. Um, so uh, authenticity is really clear, What well, uh, is really important. Uh, just to give one example of this, uh, there's this uh, uh, research on the power of uh, values affirmations, another wise intervention where uh, you just take some time to ask people, hey, what are your values? It's almost like an act of perspective getting. Hey, what, what do you really care about? What do you really care? What would you fight for? What would you die for? And that little practice has been found to have a whole suite of effects ranging from improving people's health to helping them to lose weight, helping them to cope with stress under certain key conditions. But one of the, one of the, 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 one of the most uh, important effects is that it helps marginalized group members feel like they're seen in the classroom. So when they complete this activity, their teacher asks them about their most important values, they get better grades, and even years later, they're more likely to be doing academically and make it to college as a result of just being asked, what do you care about? Now, what's really key in that affirmation, research by Eric Smith suggests is that the student sees it as an indication that the teacher is interested in me. It's an opportunity for me to kind of bring to the surface what I care about, to feel seen. And if I get the feeling that the teacher is just doing it because it's like they were told to do it, it doesn't work. Uh, part of its power is in the message that the teacher is interested in seeing my whole self. And that's just one of many examples of how uh, I think we get caught up in psychology and behavioral science on the objective intervention. I really don't think, I mean, with some exceptions, I don't, I really don't think that that's what we're, that's the fish to fry here. What we're after is creating new psychological realities for people. And in so-called interventions are tools for doing that. But it's not like you scale up this objective intervention, give everyone the piece of paper and a miracle will happen. No, what's really important is, is a psychological message that I care about you. I want to know more about you. Thanks a lot. I would like now to uh, come back from uh, 
global solution uh, to solution applied in certain area. First, belonging at work, because at BVNH Consulting, we are very interested by this uh, topic. We are working with a lot of uh, uh, large companies. So do you have a perspective on first why many employees don't feel a strong sense of belonging with their organization? I mean, there's a whole host of reasons, but I'll, I'll give two. Uh, the first is simply these little experiences of exclusion that happen all the time in the workplace. I remember I gave uh, a talk, actually did a little uh, advising for a company, and and we were talking with the diversity uh, office and the manager who's who's white, and we were just talking about issues of of race and gender, and I noticed that they did all the talking. They didn't let the uh, other people, including the people from the diversity office and, and students of color, or, or sorry, employees of color, talk. And I just thought this is surreal and. These kinds of little moments of exclusion happen all the time, not just in school, but but in the workplace. And I think those are are really toxic. The the uh, and they can include microaggressions. They can, but they can also include big deal acts of discrimination where you're overlooked for a promotion that you you deserve. Um, in so many ways, these sort of uh, stereotypes uh, bleed into our social interactions. Uh, in ways that undermine employees' sense of belonging. And it's not just, of course, it's not just people of color, but we all feel excluded in in, in certain times in the workplace. Uh, but the people, people who belong to marginalized groups are dealing with that much more. And so one of the big steps is to create true climates of inclusion. And this is a, uh, an effort that a lot of uh, companies are embarking on. And, and I think we need to get away from the diversity training module uh, approach, which is really not being, I mean, it's kind of helpful, but not as effective as other approaches where people work together in groups to do a lot of perspective getting about what this, ex this place is experienced, uh, how it's experienced by employees of color, and then work together to create more healthful climates. Um, and that includes implementing, uh, you know, uh, little methodologies for preventing discrimination in the workplace. One example of this that we've tested is just creating when people come up for promotion or when you're hiring job candidates, it's so easy to hire people who are like me. We end up hiring like little mini-me's, including along race and gender lines. How do you avoid that? Well, one little simple technique, one little wise intervention is to have people commit in advance to the criteria that are important to the job. That way they can't kind of wiggle around when they find someone they like and redefine the criteria to fit the person that they want to hire, fit the person's credentials. Uh, simply getting people to commit in advance uh, to their criteria, we found in one study eliminated, eliminated discrimination based on, based on gender. So that's just one example. Uh, creating climates of inclusion, and that includes policies for work-life balance, uh, channels for reporting, incidents such as sexual assault. Research by Tony Schmader says that the, shows that the availability of these policies is a big predictor of women's and uh, uh, employees of color sense of, sense of belonging. The second thing I think that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, the second thing I would say is that I think a lot of workers uh, aren't experiencing purpose. 
purpose, a sense of purpose. And I think in a lot of professions, much more can be done uh, through transformational leadership, for instance, to promote a sense of purpose in employees. Here I think of uh, Adam Grant's work, just where he finds that having the manager or the leader just say, look, our work is really important. Here's why. Here's the values that we're, that we're all working on together. Uh, this is the infinite game that we're playing. And then he creates the reality here, like talk to someone whose work, uh, you know, who was affected by your work. I want you to meet this person. The combination of those two things, talking the talk and walking the walk, sending the message that this work is important, creating the reality so people experience it as important, he finds leads to uh, large gains in productivity among employees in one field experiment. What would be uh, your one piece of advice for a leader who would like to reinforce not only for uh, minorities people, but for all employees, this sense of uh, belonging in their organization? Perspective get. Perspective get. Because as much as you know, you often don't know, you, you, you're bound to know less than you think. So inquiring uh, with your employees about the climate, the experience at the workplace, the barriers they report that they see in their, in their workplace to fully belonging and succeeding, there is no better antidote than asking because every situation is different. And then making a concerted effort together as a company, as a team, to create a more inclusive client based off of that initial diagnostic of perspective getting. Uh, now, another big area, uh, I don't know if it is the biggest, belonging and politics. So I have two main questions for you. Why? First, how do you explain this growing division worldwide in recent years? Well, the media and the social media do a lot of damage, I think, in the way that they report the news and in the way that they cast and castigate one another. I think we're sort of living in an era where we are being stoked to experience one another as another. And so I, I would put a lot of blame. I would put a lot of blame on the politicians and the media. And for that matter, for ourselves, on ourselves. I mean, I've done that too, where you kind of just get a little... We become really in our disagreements. We become disagreeable. We we act reflexively rather than reflectively, and we lose our temper. Uh, and so I I I think that all this uh, accumulates into a sort of us versus them reality and mentality. And do you see uh, any? Uh solution specifically relevant in politics that could have an impact, a significant impact on reducing this division? Absolutely. Good conversations, which are hard to have increasingly. Civil conversations. I, I like this book, uh, Bill of Obligations. I've got the, the title, but it's basically enumerating these sort of obligations we all have as citizens, uh, one of which is to be civil with one another, to disagree without being disagreeable. And that's a skill set. That's a skill set. Uh, how to turn a disagreement into an occasion for growth is requires an attitude, of course. I need to be curious. But it also requires a skill. And just to give you an example, 
uh, some research by um, a postdoctoral uh, fellow in my lab, Michael Schwabe, has shown that very small changes in how we have conversations can have big effects. So for example, just when we give our opinion saying, I think, or from my point of view, has two effects. First, uh, it sends the message to the other person that, oh, this person's seeing this as a subjective issue, and that other person actually becomes much more interested in our position and learning more about it, and even uh, uh, becomes less likely to castigate and villainize other people from my group, right? They, people become less, less um, antagonistic uh, and less polarized. Uh, but also for the speaker, too, I become a little less biased myself. I'm less likely to assimilate evidence in light of my political positions later on, we find. Uh, I'm more uh, humble when I give my views about the other side. I'm less likely to sort of villainize the other side myself. So a little change in how we talk can have a really big effect, have a really big effect. And so that's just one example, how we express our opinions. Um, using caveats, acknowledging the subjectivity of our point of view is, is one thing we can do. Uh, then I would have to, I would, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this awesome research by um, David Brookman and Josh Kala on deep canvassing, which I think serves as an inspirational model for the kinds of conversations that we can all have. Uh, they had a number of studies, but it boils down to creating brief conversations across political lines where the two sides share their point of view and they listen to one another and they don't bombard each other with facts and information. Instead, they ask questions, share stories and listen to one another. And there's a few other things in there. There's a sort of emotional empathy, like when talking about issues of transgender rights, for instance, in one study, they ask people, well, you know, think about a time when you felt excluded. How did that feel? Is that at all similar to this issue? Kind of working at that level of the emotions. And what they find is that this, these kinds of conversations uh, can really create meaningful change. Uh, in one study they found, uh, they went into the most conservative district in Florida. I think it was Miami-Dade. And they found that uh, these voters became much more supportive of transgender rights and actually more likely to stand up against um, hate speech against transgender people. Uh, and there, the influence was one-sided, but I think having these kinds of skillful conversations across lines where we don't lose our cool, where we um, acknowledge the subjectivity of our point of view, and we have a genuine curiosity. We're not there to convince the other person. We're there to sort of be curious about how they're thinking and perceiving the situation. Those kinds of conversations yeah. are the best antidote to uh, the polarization that, that we experience today. It ain't gonna happen from the kinds of stuff happening on social media, but civil conversations, civil conversations that get us out of our skull and make us, uh, help us to really genuinely explore the mind of the other. That is gonna be our way out, I think. Uh, I think it is good uh, uh, advice. I have uh, now uh, quite a personal uh, question i have to confess my uh, my uh, daughter valentine is a young teacher in primary public school in france uh, so what would be your advice to help uh, my daughter valentine reinforce the sense of belonging within her classes oh wow well every every classroom is different but i would do a call out for the jigsaw classroom Elliot Aronson's uh, classic, wise 
practice in which um, what he does is he restructures the classroom to make it more cooperative. And he calls it the jigsaw classroom because every student is given a piece of the puzzle of the curriculum. So if the curriculum, the curriculum or the, the subject matter, you know, might be a biography of Ben Franklin, it's bro broken up into six chapters and each kid is schooled on each chapter in Franklin's life. And then what he does is have them have those six students get together. And uh, the only way in which they can learn the complete lesson is by cooperating together. So the, the brilliance of his practice is that it makes it in children's self interest to cooperate with one another. And every kid has uh, is both a, a both receiving a gift from one from another kid, but also giving a gift. And the gift they're giving is knowledge. And research suggests that when you act pro-socially, you you become much more favorable to the person that you're you're giving to. So this um, practice, this jigsaw classroom, has has wonderful effects in terms of bringing kids together. This is primary school, so he, he's, I'm speaking specifically for primary school. It's been used at, at later years too, of creating these sort of like little oases of belonging, and it even helps create harmony in. Um, divisive classrooms where uh, he did a lot of this work post desegregation as uh, 1971 in Austin, where he was trying to get students of color and white students to be less antagonistic towards one another, because there was a lot of racial tension. It even worked there, it brought the two, two racial groups together, uh, created more interracial friendships and promoted the, the self-esteem and performance of, of, of both groups. So creating those situations where people are working together, true community games, like a community game, where you're working together in common purpose, that's the best way to promote belonging. And the Jigsaw Classroom is just one means of doing it. Thanks for Valentine. I will share this with, with her for sure. Uh, Jeff, we are uh, close to the end of uh, our conversation, but I have some uh, additional uh, question. Uh, one is, uh, my feeling is a lot of the wise intervention you describe and suggest are very, I would say, personal, subtle. Uh, the importance of keeping the power of the fundamental attribution in mind, the uh, importance of authenticity, empathy, uh, uh, avoiding being authoritarian to craft a situation with care. Uh, so my question is, uh, I have uh, interviewed recently uh, an amazing researcher, Professor John List, who has recently published uh, The Voltage Effect, which is about how to make great ideas scale. So my question for you is how to make your great uh, ideas scale? Well, there's two answers. The first is to, uh, through a process similar to what uh, John talks about, is to really be systematic in scaling up ideas that are likely to be successful in scaling. And I know he has a whole book about the sort of key um, aspects of ideas that make them scalable, one of which I think is really important, which is the idea of identifying these hidden conditionals, like the things that you create in that initial efficacy test that really may have been a catalyst for the intervention working. And I think that's really key. Um, and once you kind of identify those ideas that are likely to scale, uh, then what you want to do is to kind of create the conditions uh, for their success or 
allocate, I think, allocate those interventions in context and for people for whom they would work. I don't really believe in a kind of fluoride in the water approach where you give the intervention to everyone. I think that the um, the greatest gain will happen when we allocate these so-called interventions judiciously, much like in medical science. You, you kind of Someone comes to you with an illness and you're like, let's try this. And you, you, there's a whole diagnostic profile for linking the treatment to the person. So I think that's one way in which um, the scaling process uh, is going to happen. And it is happening. David Yeager, Greg Walton, Shannon Brady are doing this amazing research where they're working actually in Jeffrey Borman with Affirmation. Amazing research where they're scaling up these interventions to thousands of kids in school. Uh, across the country and actually across the world and uh, finding very uh, positive effects, but effects that are especially positive in certain circumstances. And those circumstances are ones in which uh, the school provides objective resources and opportunities for the kids to learn and where there is actually an achievement gap between among students. In those contexts, these affirmations are like, uh, you know, water on part soil. They kind of unlock uh, kids' potential. So that's one model of scaling, judiciously disseminating interventions to the people and places where they're most likely to do good rather than blanketing them across the across the world. Um, the second is, uh, I think the big fish to fry is changing how we think, changing how we think. I tell my students, your, your prism is your prison and other people's too, how you look at the world. If you're looking at the world and seeing people as these like entities as we do with the fundamental attribution error, uh, you're going to do damage. If you have stereotypes that you're using and you're not conscious that, oh, I could be biased, like just having a little humility there, um, you know, knowing that you're capable of a little self-deception, as Richard Feynman might, might put it, that not everything I think is true, then I am a little bit more likely not to have, uh, not to be, have my perceptions poisoned by the stereotype. So I think the real fish to fry is changing hearts and minds, helping people to kind of look at one another through more of a social psychological lens, like the, the one that we're talking about, where we see people as sort of not, not uh, finished products, but as works in progress and uh, as, as um, works in progress that we all have a, some degree of power in, in supporting. So I think, kind of helping people to kind of break free of these cultural biases and understand their own power for cultivating belonging is a, is a second strategy. And if we all do it, if we all have these mindsets and kind of cultivate these practices, I think that, you know, when you have a lot of people doing the same thing or similar things, that can have a big, big effect. That can, that can, that, that's the, the most powerful kind of scaling is cultural change, changing hearts and minds. Uh, and in that way, I think that, a lot of the best interventions have within them the seeds of their own obsolescence. Like once everyone starts to, you know, once teachers, for instance, start to affirm everyone in the classroom or, you know, we all start having these very civil conversations and, you know, we're not going to get any effects anymore in these randomized experiments because now the control, the default of our lives has shifted in a positive way. Uh, to end this uh, conversation, uh, Jeff, I would like to uh, ask two final questions, one personal one and one more your perspective. The personal one, do you have any new research you are looking forward to working on? Oh, yeah. 
Well, again, a call out to Michael Schwabe. One of the things we're really interested in is helping people uh, identify with their, their core values. Uh, because, you know, teens, especially teenagers and young adults, there's a huge mental health crisis now, as you know, with uh, teenagers and, and young adults. Loneliness is through the roof. Anxiety is through the roof. Uh, it's a real problem. One of, the, one of the things that may be helpful is helping them to sort of uh, to re-identify with uh, purposes and, and sources of meaning that are less extrinsic and more intrinsic. I think when your worth is extrinsic, it's like focused on the evaluations of other people as it is with social media today. You're going to go up and down all the time and it's going to kind of create a lot of anxiety. But if your worth is grounded in, in um, things that are fundamental, like uh, transcendental purposes, things that are kind of larger, bigger than you, then you know, you're, you're, you're more grounded and your sense of well-being is less likely to be um, uh, derailed by the everyday obstacles. And so one little um, practice that, that, um, that Michael developed is uh, one in which he just has teenagers uh, or, and young adults think ahead to their last days in their lives. What I want you to do is think ahead to the, your last days, days in, in your life. And now imagining that, try to imagine what you would be most proud of in your life at that stage. And what he finds is that this is really a powerful, it has a powerful impact on people's intrinsic motivations that, you know, in the control condition, very few people write about the importance of relationships and helping others. These are teenagers. And that's actually pretty consistent with survey research today. Um, uh, but in that condition where people think ahead to the end of their lives and reflect back on what they would be most proud of, uh, the majority of people talk about relationships and helping others. It's a way to kind of reground yourself, to focus on things that are bigger than me, um, beyond me. And ironically, when the ego is kind of freed from the concerns of itself, then we end up being healthier and happier. So that's just one example. Uh, and to conclude, what do you see as the key challenges for social psychology and what is uh, your hope for the future of the field? I want to con continue the Lewinian tradition of using science for social good. And what I would love to see, and I think this is happening, I think this is happening, is a so social psychology dedicated to practical impact, to supporting people, to supporting people. And I think part of this is getting away from this uh, overly sort of scientific model of, you know, we're supposed to predict, explain, and control people. I, I don't like that. I think our goal should be to uh, understand, empathize, and support. Because oftentimes the best interventions that we do, like they unlock people in really unpredictable ways. So I would love to see a more pragmatic social psychology. I think it is becoming more pragmatic and one that um, more directly touches people's lives uh, for good, because I think there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of fires out there in the world that we could contribute to, that young people today could contribute to. And I'm just so hopeful that uh, uh, many of them will. And I, I would just kind of really wanna uh, support that inspiration for anyone who's, who has that, is that I really believe this field can do a lot of good and the potential for it to do even more is, is great. 
That's a wonderful conclusion. Thanks a lot, uh, uh, Geoff. I have loved uh, this conversation. A lot of uh, great insight, uh, solution uh, uh, to solve a, a key uh, problem for uh, all of us. Uh, I do encourage our listeners to read your wonderful uh, book, Belonging. Uh, so a big thank you, uh, uh, Geoff. Is there anything you would like to uh, leave our listeners with perhaps where they can find out more about you and your work, uh, website, Twitter, LinkedIn, I don't know. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. And uh, but the best way to read uh, the best way to reach me or to explore the, the book or the research is at my website, which is just my name with the middle initial. So Jeffrey, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, L, Cohen, C-O-H-E-N.com. And thank you, Eric, for such an amazing conversation and for inviting me on your show. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Take care. Thanks. Bye, Jeff. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.